0: this series radical choices and it really had to do with the, this idea of sitting with what has been over the past couple of years we've tried to sit with the, the life of the Apostle Paul we talked about his amazing conversion and trans- transformation and we we explored um, the beginnings of the, the mis- first missionary uh, uh, journey that was ever taken was by Paul and his partner in, in ministry Barnabas and how they took the message of Jesus out and in the first time ever outside of the safe places and now we're looking at another piece of this. We're, we're looking at the book of Acts and we're learning together um, through the lens of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's designed to get us to Easter, but there's something else happening. And there's two things that I want us to be aware of. One is the value, whether we're, if we're a follower of Jesus and we've been following him for a while, there's a value in just revisiting uh, our roots and understanding how the Bible works. That, that alone has value. And if we're new, then for some of us, it's the first time we're actually sort of being introduced to these things. That were connected to the first moments, the first years after Jesus you know, was crucified and resurrected and ascended. We had the early church that begins to break out. But it didn't just happen nice and neat. There were a lot of things about it that um, amaze us because it involved conflict and it involved a lot of courage sometimes to confront things. And so, part of what we've been looking at is this underlying theme of you know, relational health. And so we're not only going to look at what the Bible teaches us about what happened and learn some history of the church and just sit with it and consider some amazing things. We're also going to be hopefully gaining some life principles, thinking about what it means to grow in our own capacity, to love God better, to love others better, um, to be a growing person, to be a better follower of Jesus. These are the things we want to look at together. So I'm just going to actually have us look at some of the scriptures we, we covered last week. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. It's just to connect us. We're going to look at a very remarkable exchange, actually. But let's begin by reading out of Acts 14, verses 26 through 28. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria. Now, I'm going to put the, have them put the map up because the map, the, the they was Paul and Barnabas. They had just got back from the first time anyone had ever gone on a a journey to take the message of Jesus into places that had never been taken before. As you can see there, the center, the sending church, was in Antioch of Syria. That was actually a very strategic church. It was the first time there had ever been a, a mixed Jew and Gentile church with such dynamism. In fact, it was in Antioch of Syria where people were first referred to as Christians. Again, uh, the church in Jerusalem was, we'll talk about this a little bit later, was almost exclusively Jewish, and any Gentile was there with someone who was actually no longer even necessarily a Gentile. They had converted fully to the Jewish way of life. Some had attached themselves to the community in different ways as outsiders, but the church itself was Jewish. We'll talk about that. But the church in Antioch was different. It it was a group of Gentiles and Jews, non-Jews, predominantly Greeks and Gentiles coming together um, with many others as well. to to form a community, and the world had never seen anything like it. It was very remarkable. Paul and Barnabas are coming back after a a few years away. It says that they came to the place where their journey had begun. Look at verse 26. It says the believers there had entrusted them, I love that phrase, to the grace of God to do the work that they had now completed. I love the idea of entrusting someone we love to the grace of God. Uh, It says that, they, they came home, and they upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together. They, they reported everything that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith, a very descriptive word, opened the door of faith to the Gentiles as well. And they actually stayed there for, with the believers for a long time. So we don't know the exact duration, but it was a long time that they remained there, resting, recuperating, sharing what had happened. We talked a lot about that last week. We know that something else happened, that... In chapter 15 is alluded to. It says, While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived, and they actually began teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you really can't be saved. Now, these were believers in Jesus, and they were being told by this group that had come from Jerusalem that unless they, they were circumcised, uh, which was a rite that had been passed down, you know, you know, through generations, starting with Abraham, um, and made its way through the law of Moses. It was a, distinct, a distinguishing point for the children of Israel. Um, the removal of the male foreskin was a way of saying, we are God's people. And so for these Jewish believers, um, they were adamant that the rights of the, what we call the Older Testament, the law of Moses, uh, the, the feast days, this, this pr- the principle of circumcision. You're going to see this. When you read the, the Bible, especially the book of Acts, but all the epistles in the New Testament, this theme comes up a lot. This was a big issue. It's not a, it doesn't, it's sort of like foreign for us, but it, it's such a huge issue. Because again, remember, in Jerusalem, the church that was there, I mentioned it, was predominantly, almost exclusively, I should say, Jewish. Uh, the disciples had all been Jewish. Uh, the early believers were all Jewish. Paul was Jewish. Everybody, there was a, it was a uniquely Jewish expression, and the, what distinguished a lot of them was primarily their belief in Jesus as Messiah, the Messiah who had come. But many of them, in all other respects, would have been no different from anyone else who was practicing Judaism now in Jerusalem. Now, in the church of Jerusalem, I'm going I'm to share one more detail. The church itself was made up of, of two large groups of Jewish believers. There would have been one group that was what we would call, or historians call, Hellenized. They were Greek-enculturated. and That is, although they were Jewish eth- ethnically, their culture was predominantly Gentile in, in the way at least they were very comfortable um, that was, you know, you know, Greek was like English is today. It was the language of trade and commerce of people who were accustomed to being in different places of the known world would have been well-versed in Greek language and in Greek culture. This, had, this was a sort of normal way of living. And, so they were, and if you had been in a more urban environment, you might have also, you know, outside of, of Israel, you would have also experienced interacting with a lot of different cultures, and you would have been around Gentiles a lot, as Paul was when he was growing up. And the, you know, as a result, you would have been very much at ease, speaking the language, right? You speak Greek as well. And that was something you could do at ease. But there was, so that was one group of the early church. We called them the Hellenized um, believers, you know, the more Greek and culturated believers. But on the other side, there were also what were called the Hebrew believers. These were people who were more local, more parochial. They had, they had um, were you know grown up far more sheltered. They're just remember the disciples grow up in Galilee predominantly, or in the Galilee in the north. You see where the Sea of Galileas. They, when Jesus calls them, many of them were fishermen, more than a few. And, and they, they followed him, um, but they were not well exposed to, to a lot of what was going on in the larger world. They, they had a, a, a smaller experience of life. It was very Hebrew and Jewish in expression. In Jerusalem, it was extraordinarily so. So you had, again, in the early church in Jerusalem, a kind of part of the church is very at ease, speaks Greek fluently, very at ease with Greek culture, and another part of the church that is more Hebrew, more oriented towards the practices of Israel for generations. They believe in Jesus. And then on the extreme wing of that group is another group, many of whom had been or still were Pharisees, part of a religious party, some of whom had opposed, who had opposed Jesus fiercely, who had, after Christ's resurrection, become believers in Jesus. But they were as just maybe even more so intensely rigid in their commitment to the law of Moses. The only distinction being that they believed in Jesus. But beyond that, people, in their mind, people still had to come through like the, the keyhole to get even to the door. So you almost had to still adopt Jewish culture in their mind before you could really be part of the, even the Church of Jesus Christ, right? Which that wasn't called that then. They are followers of the way. So in their mind, this is the, sort of how it was set up. These guys they come it says here that as they came and they said, unless um, you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Look at verse two. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing actually quite intensely, vehemently saying finally the, the, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. so Antioch, the people in Antioch um, are affected so intensely by this debate as to what actually you know I mean they're basically saying is you really, you're not really saved unless you begin to practice the fasts and the the rites, and, and you're circumcised? We really can't say you're, even though you believe in Jesus, that's not enough. That's what they were basically saying. Paul, who had known these many of these men, he himself had been a Pharisee, strongly disagreed. And it, the contention was so strong that the Antioch church sends a delegation down to Jerusalem, and that delegation is going to have what's the first council in the early church is around this issue. And it's going to be called the Jerusalem Council, and it takes up the bulk of chapter 15 of the book of Acts. But we know that something else happened. It's not alluded to in the book of Acts. We wouldn't know about it if it wasn't written down by Paul in his letter to the Galatian churches, that region up there where he had first taken this message. In his letter, he alludes to something that occurred, most likely between the end of verse 28 of chapter 14 and the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 15, in that gap. In that long space, we think this is when it happened. It could have happened after the council, but most likely, that's kind of insider stuff, but it most likely happens right in that space. What we know happens is this, that Peter came to Antioch and had an astonishing exchange with Paul. And Paul tells us about it in Galatians 1. And so this is in our hands. This is what I would like us to look at. It says this, and we'll just kind of look at it together. It says, but when Peter came to Antioch, all right, let's stop right there for a moment because I think we may, may not real, we may not appreciate what a big deal that would have been because Peter was like, he was a giant in the church. I mean, he, he was like, he had been the, the, you know, somewhat recognized leader of the disciples. He was someone who had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. He had seen it all with his own eyes, an eyewitness, as he would say, to the majesty of Christ. He had watched Jesus in the transfiguration moment. He had watched him do things and teach things in a personal way. He had watched him crucified and been through that utter devastation and then seen him resurrected and ascended. And he was there on the day of Pentecost. And it was Peter, the changed man, who, fully convinced of Jesus at that point, boldly with the power of the Spirit, declares the, the Messiahship of Christ and the Lordship of Christ. And it was an astonishing moment in the beginning of the early church. He's sort of the, the catalyst to that moment. So when, Pete, when they heard that Peter was coming, it would have been like a big deal. Peter's coming. Peter is coming to be with us and to, to share life with us. And it would have been, again, the community was a mixed community of Jew and Gentile, and that was something that Peter himself initially might have had a problem with. I just, again, this is good for us to know. In Acts 10, it talks about how when Peter originally was, had you know, perceived things, he actually didn't believe that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, could just be saved or come into the church by receiving Christ. He he felt that they also were on the outside, that they had to become essentially Jewish as well. And you remember that he has this dream, this vision, more like it. He's praying. He has, He's staying in the house of a man named Simon the Tanner. It's described in Acts 10. And he has this, this vision of this sheet coming down with unclean animals in it. And, and it says, Peter, slay and eat. And he says, no, it's unclean. And he has this whole dialogue in his, in his vision. And when he wakes up, it's, like, it's very clear that God's trying to tell him something. And then by the time we're done, we see that there's this amazing exchange that God sets up between Peter and a Roman centurion named Cornelius who comes to believe in Jesus Christ. And then when Peter witnesses him, open up his heart to the Lord and then also sees him filled with the Spirit, he recognizes and marvels that God's bigger than I thought he was. And it busts out his paradigm way out. And all of a sudden, in Peter's mind, he kind of starts to get it, that God's, God's bigger than my, my perimeter that I've set. And he, he has a place for Gentiles who come to faith in him, and it doesn't mean they have to become Jewish. And so he got that understanding. But at the same token, remember now, he still retained a high regard for what we might call the more rigid or orthodox wing, who were more the powerful leaders of Jerusalem. And so there was this very interesting sort of thing going on in Peter's own heart. On the one hand, he's convinced, because God has really shown him, that Gentiles can come to Jesus, non-Jews, you know, apart from all these, these regulations. But on the other hand, he has this really high regard and respect for the Jerusalem leadership, who are far more rigid and orthodox in their perspectives. And so he's sensitive to both sides. Now, keep that in mind, because what we're told is that some things also happen, right? That's sort of the, the principle that we look at when we understand it. But when we get closer here, we start to see that there was something that Paul says he did. And it's just amazingly intense, because we know that what, part of what was happening is that Peter, when he gets to Antioch, just said this will be the last piece that we set up, He was, during that time, and we don't know, it might have been weeks, months, he was freely interacting with the church of Antioch, with all the Gentile believers and Jewish believers. Because, again, there was one more piece. Orthodox, the Orthodox believers, the more intense um, ones who had been, especially the Pharisee wing of the early church, they were so committed to the law of Moses that they believed that if you were not circumcised, you were not even supposed to eat together. So they held to the idea that Jew and Gentile actually were not to interact they had a basis for that, and it was, a, it was something that, you know, is going to affect what we're about to look at. So, you know, but Peter, he, he's not like that. He, in his mind, ah, he's free to interact, and you, the picture that we have is of this remarkable church. And again, the world had never seen anything like what was going on in Antioch. I mean, you had Jew and Gentile interacting in ways that had never really been seen quite like that around G, the, their commonality in Christ. You had people, this is what was utterly remarkable, not only from the diversity of, of the different streams of people coming together in ways that typically had never been, really been done, but you had people at the highest ends of society, I mean rich and powerful, freely interacting, and again, um, in, a, in, a, in a time and an era where that just did not happen, freely interacting with people who were common workers and even in some cases servants and slaves, treating one another as brothers and sisters. It was a stunning, uh, unusual, uh, dynamic of love that, that caused people to pay attention, and it, it characterized the early church. Now, I say that because this is what Peter himself, when he gets to Antioch, was sharing in. He is enjoying the company of these Gentile believers. He's intermixing with them freely. But look what happens. Okay, this is what it says. It says, Paul writes, he says, When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. I had publicly opposed, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, here it is. He he ate with the Gentile Christians who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James, James the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the Church of Jerusalem at the time, the book of James refers to him as well. James... He and the more conservative, or the, the more extreme wing of the, of the early church, when those leaders came, again, a lot of them former Pharisees that Paul would have known, when they came, it says, look at it, it says, Peter decided he couldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of the criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. So, I mean, it's kind of an astonishing thing. But the opinion of these men mattered to Peter. And he didn't want to he didn't want to offend them. So he he moved away from the Gentile Christians and, and Paul was stunned. He couldn't believe it. Alright? He was even more dismayed by what followed. Because we know we look at what happens in verse 13. Look at this. It says, then as a result, a Peter feeling the pressure and moving away from the Gentile believers, all of a sudden, other Jewish Christians begin to follow Peter, what Paul calls Peter's hypocrisy. And then he says, and even more stunning, Barnabas, my own partner in ministry, the one who had gone with me to the Gentiles, he gets up and also is let and, and basically leaves, leaves them as well. And this beautiful thing that God was doing was all of a sudden just marred with this, this kind of like intense division. And it was in, it, what was fascinating is that Paul, Paul, I can imagine Paul, again, we read this, we go, oh yeah, that's what I, no, you gotta, Paul's, I mean, he's watching this happen. And he, first off, he's looking, pro, most likely, I just say, Barn, Barnabas, what are you doing? What are you doing? I mean, we, ha- we, do, we just got back from two years going into the place where the Gentiles were, we, we went out, we reached out, we extended the love of Christ. Come on, you know better than that. What are you doing? And then it says he went, up to, he went up to Peter, clearly went up to Peter, and in front of everybody says, this is wrong. This is totally wrong. I mean, and you look at it closely, you see that he even gets, he gets right up to him, right? And, it, and it's almost like he's saying, look, Peter, before they came, you were interacting freely, happily. You, were, you weren't worried about the details of the law. You were interacting, as we should be, as true brethren. You were, the, there was no distinction. You were eating the same meals, fellowshipping together. Come on now. Now all of a sudden they show up and you feel compelled to walk away. How could you do that? To me, it is, it is hypocrisy. And then, and again, I'm in Paul's mind, if you think about it. Imagine, just try to imagine it for a moment. Peter, they come Peter who's he, again, he gets up, he goes with them, then all of a sudden all you know Barnabas even starts to go the, all the Jewish, all the Jewish Christians slowly get up. They, these were their friends. These were their, they were up they get up and can you imagine I mean imagine the moment imagine like it just happened even amongst I mean we just Olar all of a sudden just gets up and walks away. We can't eat with you anymore. It was stunning. Paul was stunned. And then on top of it, he looks at the Gentiles who are there, who are believers in Jesus, accepting you know, the, the way of Christ and all that that implied, committing themselves, just as real as, the, as his, his Jewish brethren had done, sharing a common love for Jesus and a commitment to follow in his ways. And then he's, and I can imagine Paul, again, we just read it, but I imagine him looking at, he's watching this happen. And even Barnabas gets up and then he turns and he's looking at the, the, his, the Gentile believers who are still there, and you can see it on their faces. They may not have said a word, but it's like, oh, this is where, I guess this is where the love of Christ ends. It's intense. It's intense. Look what, he, look what it happens. He says, when I, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, you know what I said? I said this, and look at Paul says, I said this in front of everybody. I said to Peter in front of everybody, Since you are a Jew by birth, and you've discarded, you are a Jew by birth, as am I, and you have discarded all the the, the laws that are, and you're living basically like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles now all of a sudden follow the Jewish traditions that you yourself just a little while ago have been saying by the way you've been living don't really matter when it comes to following Jesus, not the same way. And he goes, look, you and I, we're Jews by birth, he says, we are not you know, sinners are those born outside the covenant like these Gentiles. I get that. He goes, but look, you know, you know. It's almost like Paul is saying, you know because God showed you. You know that a person is made right with God by faith in Christ Jesus. You know that. Not by obeying this particular part of the law that you're trying to... Look, Peter, he says, look, and we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right, justified, would be another way of saying it in the Scripture, made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law, for no one will ever be right with God by obeying the law. It's nothing, Peter, you know and I know, this is not about us doing enough to get on God's good side. This is about receiving a gift that we could never earn, and you know it. Remember, later on, Paul will write a verse I've been quoting a lot. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works. Lest any of us would say somehow I am special or God owes me or I've earned it. Because we never earn it. You cannot earn a gift. You can only receive a gift and then move out of that receptivity. It's something we respond to. Paul would say later on, I never earned the goodness of God. His grace over my life. I'm responding to it. I give my life back to him. I would live my life as a living sacrifice for him, but it's not to earn his love. It's because I've received his love. It's a difference. That perspective changes everything. We only see God as someone we have to get good enough to receive us, changes how we live. But if we see our living a goodness flowing out of the fact that we have been loved, you are my beloved son and daughter, and I call you to me, then I in turn want to honor him with a life that pleases him. I give my love back to you, Lord, even though it's imperfect. I would give you my love back. I'll give you who I am. I want to honor you. Take your name over my life and represent your heart with all of my imperfections and sins and stubbornness. I pray your grace over my life. I thank you. See, that's a different perspective. So I say this because, oh, by the way, later on, Peter, to his credit, and we're not given a lot of the details, but we know this later on, Peter will affirm publicly, Paul. He will, he will say, you listen to what, this, what he says. He, he speaks the word of God. There, whatever that may have been to him at that moment, he gets past it. But here's the things that I'd like us to carry out. Because again, for me, there's a teaching, and then there's something that I would like us to wrestle with to apply in our own lives. So here we go. A couple of things to think about, wrestle with, consider, talk about. All again, connected to relational stuff. But I am going to suggest, firstly, that we need to be careful, listen, loved ones, about going just along with things. Really, we do. Number one, we need to be careful about going along with things when they're not right, especially. And in my mind, you know, this is, gonna ha- this is more real than it seems. Let's just not write this off. Oh, that's part of the Bible. No, no. There are things that may have even happened this week. They may be coming up around the bend. But there are times when we are put in situations, maybe at our job, in some of our social circles, situations that arise where everything in us is going to just want to go along with things. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to speak up. I don't want to do that because it could cost me. You know, again, I'm looking at the early church in in this particular situation. I'm saying a lot of them just got up and went with it. But there are times when the Lord is calling us to go against the grain, against the stream. And sometimes there might be things being said um, there might be things being done that in our heart, honestly, we know that we know they're not right. And the temptation will always be, you know, I I, I can't afford to say anything. I, mean, I, could, I, could get, I could get that, it could get used against me. You know, these moments come up where we get to decide if we're actually really committed to following Jesus. And I'm not, you did not hear me say a one-size-fits-all answer. I am saying there are times where if we're really honest, the Lord is saying, you cannot go with this. You must say something. Don't close your eyes on this one. Don't just go with the group. There are times where following Jesus even requires us to be a little countercultural, to not just go with the grain, but sometimes a little bit against it. I know I'm not talking about arrogantly, you know, angrily. I'm just saying courageously. Sometimes it's required of us. Other times I know, and I look back in my, my own life, there have been times where something was happening so fast that I didn't really have time to process it out. And on the back end of it, I go, man, what just happened? Because we just react. A lot of times we're not really thinking, right? So think, have you, I mean, I think some of us can relate. Something happens fairly rapidly, so intensely, that we just kind of get caught up with it. And we end up on the back end of that, we end up going, I, I, I don't think I should have done that. I don't think that's what the God wanted me to do, but I just went along with it. I didn't speak, you know, whatever, what I'm saying. I think about some of those, those believers, maybe who, the Jewish believers who were in that moment, maybe they, maybe they had a really hard time. I I try to imagine in my own eye, we're like best friends. We're neighbors. I mean, we've shared the love of Jesus together. We pray for one another. I love you. I love your family. And then I got to get up out of my seat. I I can't have anything to do with you anymore, really. At least not now. I can't eat with you. I can't eat with you. Because Peter and the leaders. So, you, know, you see what I'm saying? Now, that is the thing that the Lord at times is going to want us to. He's going to call, I get it, but sometimes we need the grace of God because we don't always do it right. We, but we, you know, we got to learn. We got to keep learning, go growing. Second one, right on the heels of it. Look, at, Think about this. And I've been saying this a lot as well. I say a lot as much for my own self as anything. But I think we need to, yeah, this shows it. I think we need to be aware. Number two, we need to be aware of our blind spots in our weak areas. We really do. Peter, uh, he fascinates me. I think he's probably my favorite character because we see he's so real, and I see him in his flaws. When you read the Gospels. Peter's like this very human. He's, so, he's very real. He's impulsive at times, a little bit reckless, but he sometimes stumbles into just these astonishingly courageous moments, right? He's got this kind of swing to him that I find... Fascinating, but one of the things that stands out is that on the one hand, he's this very mm, rock-like kind of brave. He's courageous in his own way. The former fisherman, if you recall, was ready to fight. He told Jesus, I'm going to tell you something, I'll say it in front of all these guys. When they come for you, they're going to have to go through me. Uh, that's what he said. I'll fight for you. In fact, he said this, I want you to know, and I don't think he was joking, I will give my life for you. I will give my life for you. That moment came. Remember the garden? It came in the garden. The Bible says that when they came for Jesus, the soldiers begin to come at him in the night. The Pharisees and the contingent, they were going to arrest Jesus, and Peter rises up, as he said he would, and he pulls out a sword, and he begins to fight. And you know what? He swings the sword. And he hits a man right near his head, slices his ear. The man's name was Malchus, which leads most people to believe that he ended up becoming a follower of Jesus because we wouldn't have known his name. Otherwise, it's rare that you get a name like that, a detail like that. But what happens is in the heat of that moment, everything's starting to go. And Peter's, they're coming at Peter. They're pulling out their swords. He's got his out. He's about ready to defend Jesus. Jesus says, stop, stop this right now. Peter, put the sword away. Put the you the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. You put the sword away. He says it is, it is as it should be. And it says that Jesus went with them. He, they bound him and they took him. But the disciples fled. But my by, by the way, Peter was not so well trained as a swordsman that he could aim for an ear. Right? <laughs> that was not what he was aiming for. <laughs> Hear me. He was swinging to defend Jesus at all costs. But what happens to him? We know. Hours pass. The same man who was willing to fight for Jesus was so vigorous in his defense. <sighs> around a fire, he, everything's crumbling. He's not making sense. He's losing his equilibrium. There's spiritual things happening. There are people around him. He's warming his fire from afar, from a distance, which is always a key. Following Jesus from a distance, hard thing to do. He's warming his fire. Warming around the fire, and a servant girl says, Hey, I kind of recognize you. Aren't you one of those 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 followers of Jesus who was just arrested? No, no. First time, second time, no, third time, finally, he just starts swearing. I don't know the man. He did not all he was just being surrounded by people He was being asked questions. I look at that and I go, man, that is the exact same. See, he you know why? He had a weak zone. You know what his weak zone appears to be? It appears to be that he was really peer pressure. It tended to affect Peter when he had time to actually feel it. And the same thing that happens when he denied the Lord and barely recovers, by the way. The same thing is happening here. Again, the same thing, the peer pressure, this time from a delegation of respected Jerusalem leaders, right? Some of whom have been Pharisees, men of power, men of intellect impressive in their own right, followers of the Lord. And he, he, he basically, you know, if you look at it, he in this moment, he, 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 like, he caves in. He, he gives in. He basically goes with them. He doesn't really believe it. But he goes with them because their opinion mattered. And he goes just like he did that one time when he was around the same thing. We all Here's the deal. We all have what, I, what I, like, I call, I say, we all have weak zones. We all do. We all have areas of um, particular vulnerability. And spiritually speaking, we would do well to know them. The more self-aware we are of our particular areas, and a lot of times those areas where we need extra grace from God, and we need healthy accountability, because when those buttons are pushed, they might be connected experiences we've had in the past, might be connected to habits that we have indulged ourselves in. they, will, they sort of like sit there waiting to overcome us again. Um, it might have to do with trust injuries that then we have certain emotional responses that will cause us to be extraordinarily reckless when certain things happen. Or when we get discouraged or lonely or defeated, we begin to isolate ourselves. My point is we all have areas where we're particularly susceptible to veering way off course and to doing things that otherwise we would not normally do. In Peter's case, he loved these people, he did but he felt the pressure, and so he wanted to please, and he went, he breaks. The same thing will happen with us. That's why, you know what, that's why we really do need to have um, the freedom and the ability to just l- say, Lord, I need you to be patient with me. Um, you know, I, I need you to, to teach me how to grow so that I can secure this weak zone in my life. Some things, listen, God, I've seen it in people's lives. He like just takes it away miraculously. Is it? It's like a miracle. I was like, All of a sudden, I, I, in an area where I've been so weak, I'm, str- I'm strong. But there's a lot of areas where it becomes a lifetime thing for us, okay? It's day by day, learning how to live in his grace. Paul would later on say, you know what? I'm actually great." He would say this, I'm actually grateful that God has given me what he called a thorn in the flesh, a real struggle point that he wasn't really clear about. He had a past. We know that. Because he says, you know, because remember, this guy is like this intellectual giant man of, just an amazing guy. I mean, stunning. Well, whereas Peter's parochial, Paul's extraordinary, learned, exposed, bicultural, extremely, um, you know. Uh, well-versed in philosophy, capable of interacting with Greek philosophers at high levels. At the same time, he's uh, very uh, grounded, deeply grounded, and taught by the finest teachers in the way of the faith of his people. I mean, he's just an enormous, broad-minded man who's got intensity to match it and organizational skills that are off the chart, and yet God grounds him in his grace by, by saying, there's always a part of you that must remember, you need me. And when, you know what, the more we are aware of our own weakness and our need for God's grace... It does two things. One, it stops pride. And two, if, it, if it's working right, it gets us when we, listen, we're far less likely to judge others and we're far more likely to extend mercy to one another. We become more empathetic, more loving. Um, and, and, this, and this leads to my final piece here, which is this. There are going to be times, number three, when we're going to need to have courage, right, to share. We're going to need to be, be, you know, people who, we only have friends who are willing to share with us. Uh, kindly and honestly, but but courageously in ways that encourage us. We need that in our lives. We need people. You know, Paul, I appreciate Paul. He was a little tough in the way he did it, but he told the truth. But we're going to all need people with whom we feel safe enough to share our stories, our weaknesses and our struggles. That part of the way that God mediates his grace, and I've said this, I keep saying it, from the values of community, values of small group, the values of cultivating friendship, is that we need to have safe places. I was telling someone this this, this week, I said, I I find this person to be an extraordinarily safe person because I feel God's love and grace, but at the same time, I come out of that feeling encouraged, but encouraged not to just do whatever I want. But you think about the word encouraged, it has to do with the the root word of that is courage. It's imparting something of strength. And we need that. Listen, we needed that from a few key people in our lives. We really do because we have those blind spots. But we also, you know what I always say? Lord, the same thing that I would like in my life, I would like to have a few people that I can share my heart with like that. And may I, here, may I be like that to a few people as well. The same thing that we desire, may we also seek to be. That goes into the root of love others as I have loved you. As you love yourself, love others, right? I'll close with this. And it's the, final, it's the final piece. And a, there's a song that we're closing with. It's called All Right Here. It's kind of got a dual meaning. The song itself is about relational honesty. But the, the, to me, the idea is all right here is kind of like a two-fold meaning. It, it means, on the one hand, it means, you know, everything's good. I'm, I mean, it's all right here. It's going to be okay. The other part of it means to me is like, I'm being utterly honest with you. I'm, all pr- I'm very present and I'm real. Both those things. And it's very cleverly done. And I think that we need people to share our lives with in Christ. We need it because we all have spots that we're going to need to have strength in it from time to time. That's okay. That's a good thing. May the Lord keep us in a good place. Hard on ourselves, but not so hard that we begin to squeeze out the joy of life. Um, but at the same time, graceful and merciful to others. How good would that be? Let's pray together, and then we'll share this final song. Lord. I, I ask you to help us all because we're all coming from different places and we all have different struggles. I mean, it's, it actually is good for us to see that even in the early church, Lord, there were, there were conflicts. Because they're real people with real, with real struggles and difference of opinion sometimes. And there's real hurts there. But through it all, your grace is apparent as well. And I just really ask that you would help all of us, every one of us, to, to just be, to, be open to what you can do in our lives and to be a growing person and to also value our our critical key friendships, and to be a person who's intent on cultivating healthy ones. Help us, Lord, to be someone who can heal and bless in your name. At the same time, we ask you that you would send us people into our lives who who will give us that healing as well and whom we can safely share our stories and struggles with. I just really ask that, Lord. Remind us of the value of real community. I ask for your blessing. Bless our closing song. Bless our time of giving. May you be honored in these final minutes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.